Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Mimiverse Monthly Audiocast. I am your host, writer-director Christopher R. Mim, and I have to ask, are you there? Are you listening? Do you care? Do we share? Is it fair? Don't glare. It's just a bear. <laughs> okay. It's an exciting time here in the old Mimiverse. I'm recording this just, well, less than a week from the world premiere of my next film, Annihilate All Humans. I think last month I said that I'd wait till after the premiere to release this stuff, but I decided not to because I realized that I have so much crap going on. The last thing I'm going to want to do is get the premiere together, do the big event, and then have to turn around and quickly record the audio cast and edit Atomic Tales and get the newsletter together. It's just, it's a lot of work. It's more work than it probably seems. It takes hours and hours to get it all together. I got to write the newsletter. I got to get it proofed. I got to fix the mistakes I made. I have to test all the programming. You know, I'm trying to sell stuff to people, like get people to buy DVDs and whatnot, or to contribute to the new movie, The Wad. So that takes time. I got to test all that, make sure it works. And then I have to record the audio for the audio cast, which is heavily edited because what you don't hear a lot of the time, the thinking moments, I try to get rid of a lot of that. The dead air of like, uh, I try to get rid of a lot of that. And I say, um, a lot more than you realize because I take them all out or I try to take 99% of them out. Sometimes they come through stuff like that. There's a lot of work that goes into this. It takes several nights to get it all together. So I really didn't want to do that. I want to release my movie and then just celebrate that I released another movie. And so I decided to get it together before that. Cause usually I try to put out the newsletter and audio cast anywhere from the first to the fifth. The premiere is on the second. So either I have to wait and get it out on the fifth, which is a Saturday. I try not to release things on the weekend because it seems like people don't see the emails and the announcements over the weekend. Cause you know, people are busy doing weekend stuff, relaxing, not checking email. They're, they're going out and enjoying their summers. Well, maybe not so much this summer because it's insanely hot and no one's happy, but I try not to do it on the weekends and I just didn't want to have to worry about it. So I figured I have one chance and that was to get it out on the first. Well, I'm hoping as you're listening to this, you're like, oh my God, he did. Granted, I don't know what's going to happen between now and next Tuesday, but ideally it'll be out on the first and you're listening to this on the first, or maybe you went to the premiere and now you're listening to it. I don't know. The point is I'm trying to get it out in the first. So here I am recording the audio cast. I've already written the newsletter. I got a lot of stuff I got to get done this week. That's another thing. Like the week leading up to the premiere and the night of the premiere is always insane. I have to get all the stuff out to the contributors There's lots of contributors. I think there were like a hundred and some contributors. Thank you all, by the way. And so I have to get them their certificates and their pre-orders. And it's a lot of just packaging and mailing. Last year I had help. The kids helped and Jackie Baker helped. And you're like, who the hell is Jackie Baker? Jackie lives down in Texas. And I met her years ago when I was doing all those events down there. And she always would just come help because she knew Michael Cross. And you guys know that name. He knew everybody. So he introduced me to Jackie, who then helped me out at a lot of conventions because then she'd get in free and also would have somewhere to sit. 
which is always nice at a convention, somewhere to go and go behind a table and disappear for a little while. Jackie was helping, the kids were helping, and I'm hoping they can help me again this year because it made it go a lot faster. It only took two nights instead of five, which is what it takes when I do it all by myself. With that many contributors, it's going to take quite a while. So I've been trying to get stuff together in chunks. If you have contributed before and you've come to a premiere, you know that often I will bring people's contributor swag to the premiere if I know they're coming. If I don't, and I know there are some people that are never going to come because they're in Australia, I know that I'm safe in mailing their stuff. So I package it all up and I mail it and then bring what I can to you know, save a little on some of the postage, but also just because then they get it faster. Because I always put it in the mail, either the night before or the day of the premiere. The earliest anyone would get their stuff that I mail would be on Thursday, the day after the premiere, if they live here locally. But even then, given that the postal service has changed things up and added a whole new category of postage where it used to be first class and then priority. And now they have like a first class, but it's not really for packages. Now there's like a ground option specifically for packages, which is more expensive than first class mail. I don't know. All I know is that they keep raising prices and it's like it costs more, but it takes longer. I know they're just trying to cut costs and make money. I get it. I really do. But as far as I know, local folks would get their stuff the next day. If I mail it out on Wednesday, they might get it on Thursday if they're really close. Otherwise, people will start getting it on Friday, Saturday. I try to send out the international stuff on Monday just because it usually takes at least a week, even going to Canada, which is very close by. It still takes a long time because it has to get through customs. And the stuff going to Australia is insane. Sometimes folks get stuff in a week. And then one guy, I think, didn't get his for like six weeks or something. When his neighbor, who didn't live very far, got it within two weeks of me sending it out. So it's international stuff. It has to go through all this process, and I get it. It just sucks for them. So I try to get that stuff out a little earlier. Whatever. The point is, I have a lot of crap going on that I have to get done before the premiere. And I don't have to get it done. I just, it's something that I've always tried to do. It's nice, I think, to get it out to people so that they get it right away. I want people to get their stuff right away. They contributed, the movie's done, you should get it. But also, the moment I release it, I want to be done. I just want to not walk away from it, but dust off my hands, dust off my shirt, and just be like, okay, Annihilate All Humans, complete. From this point forward, all I have to do is fulfill orders and maybe do some screenings, which... I got some set up, but I'm not going to announce them quite yet. There's some pretty cool stuff coming up, and I don't want to take away from the premiere because I'm excited that this movie is done and it's getting out there. And I got to say, one of the things that always gets me really excited is usually at some point during the seven days prior to the actual premiere, the owner of the Heights Theater, where we always hold our premieres, lets me come down to the theater and test the Blu-ray. We just projected off a of Blu-ray because it's 10 times easier. It's shot in HD, so it's not going to look any better than that. And he lets me just watch the whole thing by myself in the theater. And honestly, it's one of my favorite things I get to do because that to me is the moment it feels like I finally finished the film. The premiere, yes. Okay, I get to show it to people. But once I do that and I know that the movie's done, 
and the premiere is all set. I mean, this thing, the premiere is all set now. I can start to relax from the creative part of it, which maybe sounds weird, but there's always this weird paranoia that goes through me that like I didn't finish it. It's almost like a, one of those bad anxiety dreams, you know, where you have a dream where you're in school and suddenly you're in a class and it's like the end of the year and suddenly you realize you didn't do any of the homework and you don't even know what the homework is and you might fail the class. What are you going to do? I'm going to fail the class. I don't even know. Or you're like lost in the school. You can't even find the class you're supposed to go to because suddenly your school is a freaking labyrinth. Anyone else have those dreams or just me? I've heard other people say similar, but it's just like this feeling that you're not going to finish something. And so there's that same weird sense of anxiety hangs over me until I can watch the premiere program at the Heights, because I know at that moment I finished the movie and I didn't forget anything. I keep feeling like, oh God, what if I forgot something? What if I didn't finish it? What if there's stuff that is messed up and it's just not going to work? And somehow like I'm telling everybody it's done, it's done, it's done. And it's not. It's a stupid paranoia, but it's still that nagging feeling that what if I forgot something? Once I get that personal screening in the Heights, it's gone. I've seen it. I watched the entire premiere program and I know that it worked, that it looks fantastic and it sounds fantastic. Here's the thing that I realized and I've realized it before, but it hit me again as it always does when I get to finally watch it at the Heights. The Heights Theater is exactly, exactly how I want my movies to look and sound. There is something about that auditorium mixed with the sound and the projector and just everything about it is exactly the way my movies are supposed to look and sound. That is how I see it in my little editing area. That's how it looks. That's how it sounds. That's how it feels. That's how the stereo mix, everything about it. It's as if my editing computer, which is starting to get old and I don't really want to leave it because it's like, it's perfect to where exactly I want it. And I don't want to have to get a new one and readjust everything and hope that it turns out the same. You know, it's like, I've been doing it for so long on the same computer, the same software, the same monitor, the same speakers, everything that it's like, it's hit the sweet spot for what I want. It's almost like it's perfectly in tune with the heights and it never, as far as I'm concerned, sounds or looks better than anywhere else. And I know it's because for one, that auditorium has been around forever. It's almost like the standard baseline of how theater should be set up because it goes back so long. I mean, it's almost a hundred years old now. It's been operating for almost a hundred years. Think of how many people have seen movies at the Heights. I mean, that's crazy. People saw silent movies there when they were new. And so that auditorium is designed perfectly for the cinematic experience. And over the years, it's been tuned and retuned and retuned as they've brought in new equipment. And the guy who owns it cares, clearly. And he's spared no expense in making sure that it's just one of the greatest, if not the best movie house in this state. And so my movies are perfect there. And so I always get very, very excited when I finally get to watch my movie and it works. You know, there's always this part of me that's like, I'm going to get to the heights and then I'll just be like, God, it sounds like crap because <laughs> that's happened before way back when this is kind of interesting. When I first saw 
the monster Phantom Lake there, the owner hadn't even put in a real digital projector yet. He had like one of those like portable ones in like the fourth row and taped off the front rows that people couldn't even sit up there. And he was running cables for audio and stuff. So it wasn't tuned for what we were doing. He had never run something off of a DVD before, but he made it work for me. For as cool as that was, it wasn't tuned for that kind of thing. It was like trying to run a DVD that was edited in stereo, the audio, and he was running it through the surround sound in the theater. And so it sounded really weird because like the really far edge stuff became extra loud and the stuff up the middle. And it just, it sounded strange. And I was like, I don't, I don't know about this. So it didn't sound as good as I'd hoped. I mean, this is my first movie. I'm still figuring things out. The movie, like the contrast wasn't high enough and it just, it looked and sounded a little strange the first time I saw it. And I actually went back and tuned it a little bit for the theater as it was just to try and make it look a little better. And it still went off fine, and I have since just made small adjustments to it every time I put out a new DVD or Blu-ray or whatever of it, just to try and improve it a little bit, some of the video, some of the sound. But he was one of the first people to get a digital projector, and he's upgraded the sound system, and now it's set up to also project and understand the difference between like the high-end Hollywood stuff, and he still has a film projector up there, now has the ability to show off a DVDs and Blu-rays and Ultra HD Blu-rays and all this stuff. And so it's now tuned to recognize, okay, this is a stereo thing, just run it in stereo, this is Blu-ray, and he's got it set up to sound great. And it's been that way for at least 10 or 12 years, once he finally went digital, and it's just like he did something that now it's perfect and I absolutely love it. So I was super excited to get in there and watch the movie and watching it through. I'm like, yes, it sounds great. It looks great. This is exactly what I want. I cannot wait for people to see it. And I could finally exhale and be like, yes, this movie is done and it's time for people to see it. I hope if you're listening to this on the first that you're as excited to see it as I am to release it. If you're not going to be at the premiere, that's okay. If you want to see it, you're going to have to order a Blu-ray or DVD. Or if you're one of those people who's like, I don't really own movies anymore on physical media. For one, I don't get it, but you do you. You can also watch it at midnight Thursday morning. It's so weird. Like, I feel like everybody thinks the day really starts when you wake up at like whatever time you wake up, then doesn't really end until you go to bed. So me, my hours are kind of different because I'm a night owl and I do everything late. To me, it's like the day starts when I get up. Say if I get up on a Tuesday, it's still Tuesday until I go to sleep, which may be technically four or 5 a.m. on Wednesday. If you're like me, like when it comes to that, it gets a little weird when you say it's at midnight. Because to me, it's like midnight Wednesday night is technically 12 a.m. on Wednesday. So if I released the movie digitally, which I am doing on Vimeo, if I released it at midnight on Wednesday, you could watch it before I technically release it at the premiere. But it's actually 12 a.m. Thursday on the 3rd. Anyway, you know what I'm saying. If you aren't a person who wants to order a DVD or Blu-ray or you're out of the country and you know you've already ordered one but you know you're not going to get it in time and you just want to watch it, you can watch it via either rental or to own on Vimeo 
you can pre-order that now. So like literally when midnight hits, it'll unlock and boom, you can watch it. So feel free if you'd like to check it out Thursday at midnight digitally on Vimeo. You can do that. So you have lots of options, lots of options for what it is you can do and how you can see it. And I hope you enjoy it. We put a lot of work into it. I put a lot of work into it, doing a lot of cool special effects, which look really good on the big screen. And there's a lot of nice folks who sent in footage and everybody who sent in footage, some of their footage somewhere ended up in the movie. I think it turned out really good. I really like it. I hope people like it as much as I do. And if not, just don't worry. There's more stuff coming. And of course, there's 17 other movies that you might like. The premiere's coming. It might actually be the day you listen to it. It's coming out. No offense to anybody involved in the making of this movie or anyone who's excited. I'm just excited to be done with it. And not in a bad way, but in a, like I've accomplished something way. I'm looking forward to officially having an 18th feature and then really pouring myself into the 19th feature, The Wad. I'm going to quick talk about that before we get on to the oral history of the Mimiverse, which part of me recently thought that maybe I should have named it Mimiverse Memories then it's just too much, you know? Listen to Mimiverse Memories and the Mimiverse Monthly Audiocast. It's too much. No, it's too much. But I digress. The Wad, the next Mimiverse film. I'm done writing it. I'm done rewriting it. And it's ready to be filmed. And I have not been this excited about a script in a long time. Not that I don't get excited about my scripts, but sometimes you do things a certain way for long enough... I'm not saying it's easy because it's never easy, but you're used to it. You know what to do. You know how to lay it out. It's not that it's not challenging anymore. It's just not as challenging as it once was. And you get used to it. Well, this one being a faux documentary is so different in a lot of ways in just how you film it and present it and these ideas I have for it that I'm super excited just to mix things up so much. Sometimes you want to mix things up. Sometimes you want to try something new. Sometimes you want to go to a new restaurant or see a type of movie you never thought you'd enjoy or take a class. You know, some you just want to sometimes mix up things so you don't get bored and complacent. And this has already proven to be an interesting challenge in just writing it because it's a totally different way of approaching the material. I really like how the script came together. I like what it is. And I am super excited to get into the filming part of it and then start editing it because it's just a different challenge. It's a different type of movie while simultaneously still being one of my cheesy B movies. And so I'm excited as hell to do this film. And so I'm definitely at the point where Annihilate All Humans is going to be out, and I'm going to get into the wad like hardcore and really start trying to get this thing together. And I've done some pre-production stuff already, broke down the script, sent the script off to the actors. I got actors who are all lined up, at least one of whom you haven't heard from in years, which is going to be super cool. And I just want to get going so I can really start working on it. So that's coming together. It's officially in pre-production now. And I imagine by next month's audio cast, I'll be like, well, we're filming this movie now. What'd you think of Annihilate All Humans? This is always an exciting time when I get to release a new movie to add to the catalog. I still have this weird 
thing that keeps happening every time I release a movie now, it starts to feel like the catalog gets smaller. And I don't know what that is. There's some psychological thing at work here. I don't even know. When I released one, it was like, holy crap, I have a movie. And then I released two. Oh my God, I have two. And then I got up to five and it's like, oh my God, I have five freaking movies. And now I'm like, I have 18. Why does it feel like I haven't made enough? Why, why isn't there more? That's just the features. I have the Monster Phantom Lake, the musical DVD, and I have the holiday special. So I've done other stuff, but it still always weirdly feels like it's not enough. There's room for more. Why does the collection seem so small? Even though if you were to try watching it all back to back to back to back, it would take you more than a full day to get through everything. Yet it still feels like there should be more. It's never enough. It's a weird feeling. So every time I put out one, it feels like the collection is bigger yet smaller. It's computers. San Dimas High School Football Rules. I guess this would probably be a good spot to wrap this part up, although I should remind you that the Mimiverse is built on contributions from fine people like yourself. If you'd like to see your name in the credits, please go to sainteuphoria.com and contribute to the WAD to make sure it gets made. You can pre-order DVDs and Blu-rays and all the good stuff. Please do that at sainteuphoria.com. Now, though, it's time to get into this month's edition of An Oral History of the Mimiverse. Last month on the oral history of the Mimiverse, or Mimiverse memories, if you like things that start with the letter M, I talked about how I was going to take a break and then decided, screw that, I don't want to take a break. And then I figured out I'm going to make Wereskito Nazi Hunter. At this point in the story, it's the end of 2015. Monster Phantom Lake, the musical folks, are hard at work doing their thing, getting that together. And honestly, I think next month I'm going to talk pretty much entirely about that experience because that's really what comes next before... I release Wereskito and I move into Demon with the Atomic Brain and all that good stuff. So I think that I will save for next month. This month, I just want to talk about some of the things that were going on leading up to and shooting Wereskito Nazi Hunter, but also some of the lead up to the big Monster Phantom Lake the Musical event. It's big stage debut. I don't, again, have much that I can say about this period because I finished the script and I turned it over to Adam and he was doing the music and then they started getting into the actual production of it. And again, I stayed out of it. The only things I really did was I helped Adam run a very successful Kickstarter campaign, which at the time ended up setting some small records or something. I don't remember exactly what it was or if there was ever any true confirmation of this, but at the time it was like we had set up this Kickstarter and we just wanted to make basically enough money to put on the show. And then the stretch goals were then to record a cast album and release a cast album and do it at a specific theater and all this stuff. And it was a very successful campaign. We ended up hitting all of our goals and ended up bringing in 
at the time, the largest amount of money for like a small theater production or something. I mean, it had something to do with just the amount that we brought in to make it possible was the most that any production of our type had brought at that point. I don't know if it's been broken or what, but here I just talked about how I'm not going to really talk about the monster family, like the musical, and I'm talking about it. But this part is all happening simultaneously as I'm making Wearskeeto. Because we really didn't know exactly once I'd finished my part in adapting the script and then Adam had finished his music and we started getting into what we can do next. It all came down to how much money we could pull in from a Kickstarter campaign to make it possible. At the very least, it was like, we just want enough to be able to do it at a theater somewhere, even if it's in like a high school auditorium. We just want to be able to do the show. And it took off and it worked. That's where we were. I was happy that I got to help do that part because that was a part at least I know. If you've listened to my audio cast once or twice, you know that I'm always like, hey, can I interest you in contributing to my movies? It was just like that. I've been doing Kickstarter type crowdfunding campaigns since Destination Outer Space, which I know I talked about that when I started doing it for Destination Outer Space. It sounded like a crazy idea because Kickstarter, it existed, but people weren't doing this idea of, hey, pay me to make something and then I'll give it to you, as opposed to I'm going to make something and then you pay me for it after it's done. This idea of crowdfunding of like, hey, give me a little money and if enough people do it, we'll have enough money to make it possible and then we can make it. So it was like pre-ordering a production. And when I did Destination Outer Space back in, when I was making it in 2009, I ended up doing it straight through my website, which I still do because it's just more efficient that way. But Kickstarter and, and GoFundMe and all those things weren't even really around yet. I mean, it seemed really novel when I came up with the idea. Obviously, I wasn't the first person to think of it, but I had never even heard of anybody I had known up to that point doing it. It seemed crazy, but it worked. And I've refined it over the years. It used to be like it started, it was 50 bucks, but you also got five copies of the DVD, which is a ridiculous amount. But in my head, it was like, well, it's equal exchange. You're basically pre-ordering five copies. And then if you only need one, you can give four to your friends and they can see, oh, look, there's their name. And that was fine, but it's slowly been changed to now the average is, it's like 20 bucks and You don't get anything for 20 bucks other than the credit. And, you know, there's all this back and forth of what is a credit worth? Because for the longest time, it was like, getting your name in a movie, how can I put a price tag on that? And so it was like, no, I want to give you something. And I realized, no, there is value in seeing your name at the end of a movie. And also, you help get the movie made. That's the value. That's the exchange. And then I added, because so many people don't even do physical media anymore. I made it so it became optional to get DVDs and Blu-rays and stuff. So, I mean, it's, it's evolved over the years. Now, 14 years later, I was comfortable with the idea of working on crowdfunding campaigns. So I definitely helped out Adam and we put together a pretty damn successful campaign. We hit all our stretch goals. And I think that gave him a lot of focus on all the things he had to do because up to that point, It was all still conceptual. He had written stuff. I mean, it wasn't fully conceptual. It wasn't just in our head, but we didn't know exactly how or when we would do it or where we would do it or if we would even be able to afford to do it because putting on a freaking play can take a lot of time and a lot of money. And we're hoping that we'd have enough interest to help. And it just, it really worked out. And a lot of the cast and crew involved really helped push it and it did well. 
even had like some corporate sponsors and stuff. I mean, it just, it did really well. Anyway, so that was one thing going on. I had finished the script for Wearskeeto at the end of 2015, and I knew that I was going to start filming it in the winter and then continue it into the spring because I was going to release it in the fall of 2016. Up till now, everything had been released in the spring. Danny Johnson Saved the World was the last thing I'd released of those 10 films, right? Because Danny Johnson was number 10 and Wearskeeto was going to be number 11. And everything had been released March, April, May. And now because of this three-month break I took, which honestly, I think I had to have taken it. I needed to take it. I really did. I needed to feel like I was a little more in control of things again, I guess, of just like of wanting to do it. Because the idea that I was able to turn off and say, no, I don't want to do it. And then after a few months, I'm like, no, I really do want to do it. I miss it. I want to do it and get that back. That was really important. But also... I needed that time to get the musical together in time so that we could do it in 2016 to make it the actual 10th anniversary of the Monster Family. So everything worked out exactly the way it was supposed to. And I figured I'll just release it in September or October or whenever it gets done, Wearskeeto. And so at the end of 2015, I, I was doing all the pre-production for it and Mitch was getting the monster costume together. And we were at a point where it was like, okay, I can start scheduling this. I had Doug Sidney all set up to play the John Baker character and Rachel and Jim Norgard was all set to play Shrom. And he was super excited to be able to play a bad guy. And it's a juicy role. Let's be honest. There's a lot of juice. <laughs> That's such a weird thing to say if you think about it. It's just so juicy. Uh, few things in this world are really good if they're juicy. Maybe a peach. But, I mean, if you're thinking like, ooh, I want some juicy shrimp. Juicy shrimp just doesn't work for me. <laughs> like a juicy steak. Okay, that's that's okay, right? A juicy apple. Sure. But juicy shrimp? And you're like, what the hell is this guy going on about Juicy Shrimp? There's a place in Wisconsin called the Juicy Shrimp Shack. I see it going to the other side of Wisconsin for stuff doing in Oshkosh and McGuanago. I just, every time I see Juicy Shrimp Shack, I'm like, I don't want juicy shrimp. I don't want a shrimp full of juice. I just don't. It sounds gross to me. Anyway, it was a juicy roll. And Jim was definitely up for the challenge because he had to memorize pages of stuff. His thing was he'd be talking right into the camera and it would be this huge thing. And he was really excited to do it. And I realized because of the fact that it was going to be winter and I had to get some stuff done in the winter, there was a lot of interior stuff that I could do before it was then warm enough to shoot outside because I didn't want it to be snowy outside. It was awesome that it was actually the stuff we did outside was in the spring because there was no leaves on the trees and it just made it look kind of creepy, which I liked. And a lot of stuff I've shot has been in the summer other than like Guns of the Apocalypse, which I shot in the winter, which was really difficult. So I wanted it to look a little different. I wanted it to be a little bleaker, a little just different, you know? Something to visually show that it was not quite the same type of movie that I made up to this point, even though it was still a monster movie. I had made the decision early on that when we see blood in the movie, it would be red. This is the first time I'd ever used any element of color in the actual film itself, not including the red and blue color title 
of the giant spider, which I did because Mitch Gonzalez reminded me that the movie Them, which is about the giant ants, I think one of the best movies of that era, the title is in blue and red. The movie is shot in gorgeous black and white, like it's fantastic. But the title comes up in blue and red. And so when I made the giant spider movie, which is an homage to the giant bug movies of that era, Mitch suggested that I do the title in blue and red as a tip of the hat to them. And I was all for it. Doing the red blood was really the first time it ever truly incorporated a color element into my films. I was trying to stretch a little. I always fought the color thing a little bit. And of course, if you've seen Queen of Snakes, you know that eventually I just went full color. But it was definitely an evolution toward that. It just started with the red of the blood because I wanted to push that part. When John Baker turns into the Wereskito, I want you to see the red of the blood that changes him. And it was cool. It was a cool, different thing to do. I talked earlier in this episode here about wanting different and new challenges adding a color element like that where it's not full color but it's just like when you see blood the blood is red that was a new thing for me i didn't even at the time know exactly how to make it work it was a new challenge i got it together and i'm ready to shoot the movie i decided to start with the flashbacks of shram in his lab and we did them linearly I had lined up Mike Mason to come back to play Michael Kaiser from pre-Monster Phantom Lake, Monster Phantom Lake, because, you know, in Monster Phantom Lake, it talks about Michael Kaiser as this war hero in World War II. And I was like, I have to get Mike in here to play Lobo, pre-Monster Michael Kaiser, not actor Michael Kaiser, the actor Mike Mason playing the character Michael Kaiser, named after actor Michael Kaiser, who plays the Monster Phantom Lake who is Michael Kaiser, the character, but in monster form. Confused? Me too. I decided we would start with that and get basically the hardest stuff done first because that was so much for Jim to work on. And a lot of times I record audio after the fact. We'll record audio with a scratch track and then we'll record ADR wild audio afterwards and I'll match it all up in the editing software. In this instance, I was like, there's going to be so much dialogue of just Jim talking that I wanted to record it all live so that whatever his performance is, it would be much more enhanced by it just being in the moment. Plus, it was just so much. I didn't want to have then Jim to have to redo it all. And I knew because he had to memorize so much that it was never going to be perfect. It was going to be really close, and he came damn close to getting it perfect. But there would be small changes that I wasn't going to want to have to write down every change, so we made sure that when we re-recorded audio, it was there. And I suppose I could have had him come back later in ADR if I absolutely needed it, but I figured, wouldn't it just be easier to record it while we film it? A lot of times I don't record audio live because I don't have the crew to do it, Then I also have a little more freedom in making sure that all of the audio is consistent across the board because it's all recorded the same way and the same space. And I have a little more control over making it sound good. But I knew in this instance, because it was like single camera shot, really, and we do multiple takes getting closer with each take, I could just have the microphone off camera and it would work. And it does. And the other reason I decided to start with that is that we had a standing set that was still up from Danny Johnson Saves the World. 
Basically, I had three walls that had previously stood in for the king and queen's spaceship. And so all I had to do was do a couple of fixes and dirty it up and make it look gross and add the little medical bed, which was funny. I was laying on the bed with the camera looking up at Jim as if I was the person strapped to the bed. The bed, quote unquote, was made of boxes of DVDs. I had so many DVDs and we've done this a few times. Whenever we've needed like a bed in a movie, we just pile up boxes of DVDs and then add a mattress on top of it. It works perfectly. We did it in Moon Zombies. We did it in X the Fiend from Beyond Space. I know like the bench in the escape pod in Destination Outer Space. I mean, we've done it several times where we just use boxes of DVDs and Blu-rays as building blocks to create things that people can sit on or lay on. We use them in General Castle's tent in the giant spider. And you're like, no one cares. Move on. Let's move on. I just laid on the fake bed and filmed. And again, I already had this half standing set that I could just adapt. And so I didn't have to start from scratch. After we filmed all that stuff, we could then adapt that set to the coffee shop set, which part of me kind of looking back wishes that we had found a small coffee shop or diner or whatever that we could, I guess it was a diner, not a coffee shop, but like a diner, like a small diner that I could have actually filmed in, but my budgets are so small, I wouldn't have been able to really afford to shoot somewhere. And honestly, it was funny up to that point, I'd started to become rather, uh, dependent on building sets, which really started with destination outer space. I think, well, I guess it goes back to terror from beneath the earth when I built the caves, but really we got kind of crazy and moon zombies, you know, the entire movie takes place on sets we built. And so I'd gotten overly confident and comfortable with building sets that I figured, ah, why do we need a real diner? We'll just make one. It looks fake, (laughs) but it worked out well enough for what I was doing. But it was like, in retrospect, I probably should have just tried to find a diner I could have used. But had I done that, two things. I wouldn't have been able to, in essence, recreate the set from that one Twilight Zone episode where the bus pulls up and there's like an alien there with the passengers, everything in there, all the signage in my diner was a reference to that. It's one of the famous episodes and it's like, will the real Martian please stand up? If you go back and you watch that episode and then watch where Skeeto, you'll notice how I put a lot of similar signage and in similar spots to try and make it look like that set, whether or not I succeeded, that's for you to decide. So there's that. The other thing that I never would have been able to do if I didn't work with building my own sets is I never would have stabbed myself accidentally with a carpet knife. Here's a good story. Once we were adapting and adding on to the Schramm's lab set and we're working on creating the set for the diner, I mentioned how Ruby Gallinati and I started getting a little antagonistic toward each other. And I think we were just starting to annoy each other because we'd worked together so much on a bunch of movies and her and Mark Hader had really stepped up and helped me build sets. And like through moon zombies, like we were all sort of attached at the hip when it came to the Mimiverse. I feel like I was starting to annoy them, especially with the late night double feature of really leaning on them too much. And they were doing the Mimiverse bonfire podcast and they were just doing so much for me. And I was asking, I think way too much. 
And I think it started to eat away at me and Ruby's friendship a little bit. As things do, you know, when you work together a long time and you work together a lot, sometimes you butt heads and it just starts getting a little antagonistic. We're great friends now. We literally just went to a hockey game the other day. We're good buds. Everything's fine. But at the time, we were just, I think, starting to get on each other a little bit. And we got into a huge fight. I'd gotten this feeling like she was just sick of being involved. I felt like she was kind of pushing me into taking time off. And part of me was wondering if she was doing that simply because she wanted time off but didn't want to say it. And, of course, me being an idiot, not just asking her, hey, do you want some time off? I assumed things, and then we got into a fight. See, this is all dumb stuff that I know I did. And just me trying to avoid conflict because conflict sucks and I'm from the Midwest. Give me a break. And if you're from the Midwest, you know what I'm talking about. And if you're not, you're like, what are you talking about? Midwesterners don't like conflict, at least open conflict. We like to be passive aggressive. That's how we are. It's how we were taught. That's how we were raised. We started to annoy each other. And I was under this impression that she didn't want to be involved in making movies anymore or she wanted a break. And so I didn't send her a copy of the script of where Skeeto, because I didn't think she wanted to be involved. She was working with Adam on getting the play together and the musical together. And I thought she was kind of done or at least wanted a break. So I was giving her a break. I thought I was being nice, but I actually like hurt her feelings. Like she thought I was just like, screw you because she had been with me through a lot of the bull crap with the other actors. And she knew that a lot of times I would just kind of be like, if that person doesn't want to be involved, I just will stop asking them. I didn't have time for the bullshit. So a lot of times I just sort of walk away from those folks. And I think she thought I was doing that to her and we got on this whole thing and then we had pancakes together and we buried the hatchet and everything was fine. But it came down to, I didn't send her a copy of the script because I didn't think she wanted to be involved in the making of the movie. I didn't give her the option to just say, I don't want to be involved. I just assumed like in my head, trying to be nice, but also thinking she was too busy, but also like gave her the wrong idea because she knew how I'd operated in the past. And it was just this whole thing anyway. So they weren't helping me build sets. <laughs> so that was just a little extra information of stuff that was going on. And we really did bury the hatchet quickly, but Ruby being Ruby forced me to have to sit down and actually talk and deal with my conflict directly, which was so uncomfortable for my Midwestern self, but I'm glad she did because we really just sat down, had some pancakes at a restaurant and everything was fine. Once we just talked it out. My Midwestern self was like, oh my God, I'm, I can't do this. It's terrible. It was fine. We're best buds now, so everything's great. But at the time, it was just like, Ooh, what have I done? Because of that whole thing, it really did become clear that I was going to give her some space. And I put Mark in the movie for like one scene. I felt like I'd really overstayed my welcome with those guys and really leaned on them too heavily. And I wanted to just give them some space. And I think I maybe needed a little space too, because we all had started butting heads a little bit. At this time too, like Mark Hader had started playing on my curling team. So I was seeing him every week. We started curling in 2015 and continued to do it weekly all year. At this time, I kind of needed a little more space and thought maybe they needed some space for me too. It's all fixed since, and it was all misunderstandings, and I just, I kick myself sometimes, but maybe sometimes those things happen because they have to, right? You have to be forced sometimes to just say, I need a break, and they're like, fine, just tell me that. <laughs> but when you avoid conflict sometimes, hmm, Elliot at the time, my son, who was 14 or, or 13 at this point, 
had volunteered to help me build sets because again, a lot of the sets had already existed. So I really didn't need the help because I was building on top of existing sets. So it was just making small alterations. A lot of my sets were built with this thin wall panel stuff that's cheap and will work for what I was doing, but it doesn't have to be structurally sound, which sounds like my sets are going to fall in on people's heads. No, it just means it doesn't have to actually be like you could live there. It just needs to work long enough to shoot the movie and then you pull it down. So they're thin and you can cut them if you need to, like cut chunks out of it with just a carpet knife, but it still is a particle board. So sometimes you have to kind of jam it to make it work while I was being stupid. And I was trying to cut just a little notch out of this piece of this paneling and it slipped and I ended up stabbing myself in my thumb near my wrist. And it was like kind of deep. I did it and was like, shit. (laughs) And I covered it and I went to the sink in our basement and tried to wash it out. And I was like, yeah, that's a lot deeper than I thought. Thing is where it got me, it didn't really hurt. It's like, there's not a lot of nerve endings there. So it really didn't hurt, but it was bleeding like hell. And Elliot's like, what, what's wrong? And he's like, oh my God, are you all right? I'm like, um, I think I need stitches. He's like, what? And I'm like, I think I need, let's just, let's go upstairs. And I went upstairs and I was like, Steph, I think I need stitches. And she's like, what? I'm like, yeah, I cut my hand. I think, I think I might need stitches. She's like, what? What? And then like, she saw it and she saw how it was just like, it wouldn't stop bleeding. So I was just having pressure on it. So it would stop. Everyone started losing it. And for some weird reason, I was totally calm. It was weird. If I have to do medical stuff, like get a shot. I don't know if you've listened to my episode where I talked about having to get my first COVID vaccine. I freak out. I don't like medical stuff, but I was just like, yeah, well, we got to go in. I'm fine. It's cool. Don't worry about it, everybody. And like everyone was like on edge and freaking out like, oh, God, are you going to die? It's like, look, it's just a cut. It's bleeding. We got to go in. And it was just like, Steph, let's just go. She's like, well, uh, can you drive? And I'm like, no, I can't drive. Can you just let's go? And she's like panicking. It's like, it's really not that big a deal. It's just, I definitely think I need stitches. So she drives me into the emergency room and they get me back there and people there are really nice. And they're like, they look at it like, oh yeah, you definitely need a few stitches there. That's deep enough. And they're like, what were you doing? And I was like, well, so I make these independent films and I was building a set and I was using a carpet knife and it slipped and stabbed myself. And yeah. And they're like, well, okay. And one of my favorite things that happened as I'm sitting on the little bed and they're talking to me is like, there's a woman in there just doing the record stuff, you know, updating my records again, you know, that I'm not one who's happy about medical things. And honestly, I hate shots even more. So I've avoided them as much as possible. The lady asking me questions about, you know, where do you live? What's your name? All these things. She's like, okay, well, when was the last time you had a tetanus shot? It's 2016. So I'm 40 years old. And I just went, um, when was the last time you need a tetanus shot to go to school? And she like froze. Are you serious? You haven't had a tetanus shot in like 25 years. She looked at me like, seriously? I'm like, yeah, really? I haven't had one since. She's like, so you need a tetanus shot? I'm like, yeah, I need a tetanus shot. God dang it. And then the guy who's going to be doing the stitches is like, all right, well, we're definitely going to give you a couple stitches. And I'm like, well, here's the thing. I absolutely hate needles. The idea of getting stitches freaks me out. Are there any alternatives? And he goes, well, <laughs> We could use the glue. And I'm like, the glue? He's like, yeah, there's like a medical glue. It's like a super glue. And then we just glue it together. 
but it usually leaves a scar. And I'm like, well, it's on my hand and chicks dig scars. Let's do it. And he's like, I get to use the glue. Yes. He was so excited. He got to use the glue. And I'm like, I'm so happy. I got to let this guy use the glue. And he was so excited to be able to use the glue. Cause I'm sure most people are like, no, give me stitches. I don't want scarring. And I'm like, I don't give a crap. It's literally, you can't even see it. It's on my thumb. Who cares? And chicks dig scars. And Steph's like, would you stop saying that? And so he's doing the glue and the other person was smart because she was listening to when I said I didn't like needles and I'm distracted by the glue because while I'm not paying attention, she gave me a tetanus shot and I'm like, oh man, you're good. She's like, oh, thank you. I'm like, I didn't even notice until I was like, wait, she's giving me a shot. Holy crap. That was awesome. They were super professional and I got to make that guy's night because he got to use the glue and it worked really well. They just pinched the skin together and put the glue on and then it's got to dry a little bit and they put a little bandage on it and it's fine. And then it over time just falls off on its own and you got yourself a nice little scar. And you know what they say, chicks dig scars. <sighs> Steph is somewhere just like, seriously, stop saying that. God, that's the worst thing. Shut up. <laughs> So that was fun. That was probably the most exciting thing that happened during the making of Wearskeeto. Generally, the shoot went really well. Everything came together just right. Okay, so there's one thing that drove me nuts, but I'll tell you that story after a second here. So you guys know my son, David, you know him as Butch from the family kids movies. He was at this time only about five, six years old. And he was starting to get this in his head that he wanted a line in my movie. He wanted to be in my movie and he wanted a line and he's pretty persuasive. And even then he used his cuteness to his advantage. He was convinced, even though he was just an extra in the diner scene, that he was going to have a line, whether I gave him one or not. He wanted a line, so I was like, fine, you just say thank you in German. He's like, okay, what is it? I was like, you got to say danke, okay? Danke, that just means thank you. And he's like, okay, okay. He bullied his way into a line with cuteness, and it was danke. And he kept forgetting it and saying blanka, blanka. And I was like, danke. He's like, yeah, danke. <laughs> so he cuted his way into getting a line and then proceeded to get it wrong. But he was six, so it was okay. The only time there was really any kind of issue with shooting it is the last thing we had left to shoot was the scene where he comes to Hans's house and finds Hans chopping wood in the backyard. And we had everything worked out. Mitch made like a fake axe. So when the guy attacks Doug Sidney, no actual real axe was used. But then we also had an axe that was used specifically to actually chopped the wood and then we switched it out that it had a rubber head and Mitch did this amazing job where he basically made a perfect replica but a rubber head. It's still I think one of the coolest things he's ever made which is funny because he's made a lot of great monsters but he made that axe and it was perfect so pretty cool. So at the time there's a guy I honestly can't remember his name that wanted to get involved in acting and making movies and stuff and he had been telling me I want to be in a movie and I was like hey I might have this little role for you you have the perfect look and sort of feel for it do you want to come in and do this scene and we're at the end of the shoot and usually by the end of the shoot I'm done right I'm sick of making this movie I want to be done so I can really get editing and really finish it up I had access to this location which is the same place we shot the exteriors of the Cooper's barn scenes in Giant Spider. And so I had this specific date and time we were going to shoot. The weather was looking perfect. And I had this actor who I'd never worked with before all set up. 
like the day of that we're shooting and you know like we got all these people involved with this and everyone's schedule is all set up and sometimes scheduling stuff is really annoying and so when you get everything come together just right you take advantage the morning of he basically dropped out and he didn't drop out he's just like well i just don't feel really good i kind of have a migraine and i'm like you know what i don't have time for this stuff <laughs> And he was kind of being weird about, like, he kept asking me a million questions and I started regretting casting him. And again, I can't remember the guy's name. I started getting bad vibes about the whole thing. The morning of having a migraine, and I'm not discounting people who have migraines. I get migraines. I know how bad they are. But I also know from having worked with people, often the easiest excuse to get out of something is to say, I have a migraine. I worked at Target for years and I was even a team leader at one point at Target. That was always the thing people said when they wanted to call in sick, but weren't really sick. And I'm not saying the guy didn't have a migraine. And again, I get migraines and migraines are awful, but I was just getting a bad vibe and it felt kind of like the guy was just calling in sick. You know what I mean? Wasn't sick, but was just calling in sick. And he was just pissing me off up to this point with all the I don't know. It was just weird. It was this weird back and forth where it was like, he's going to do it. He doesn't want to do it. It's like, he wants to be involved in making movies, but he wasn't serious. Even though he was like, no, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. And then it came up to it. And he just like, was like, I don't want to do it. It's too early or something. I don't know. I have a migraine. It just felt disingenuous. It felt fake. Maybe it was real. And I'm the jerk here, but it just pissed me off because two scheduling it with this guy was really difficult. So like he's being sort of a diva when it's like, what is the deal? It's one scene. Okay. All I need you to do is come and do this one simple scene. It's not even that big. And it's like the biggest headache I've ever had up to this point. And I've already made like a ton of movies. Right. And it was just like, you know what? No. I'm just going to recast it. And then he got all pissed at me and it's like, dude, no, you're the one making this hard. You're the one making this difficult. And I just recast it. I need to get this done. I can't keep putting this off because again, scheduling it was a pain in the butt to just get him to agree to do this one day, which he then backed out on. He just pushed too many buttons and I was like, no. So we had to reschedule the day. We lost the day. So I put a thing on a local actors thing. I'm like, I have this role. It's really simple. We're going to film it on this day. If you're available and you look like this, basically, here's the description. And you can memorize a page of dialogue in like 24 hours. Because I think we're just going to shoot it the next day because Doug was available and Michael was available to be the Wearskito. Just the first person who gets to me that has the look and has a little bit of a resume and has done this before, you got the role. Within 20 minutes, Christian Finch, who ended up playing the character and appeared in Demon with the Atomic Brain and Guns of the Apocalypse, got back to me and he sent me his resume and his headshot. And I'm like, perfect. Here's the script. Can you have it ready by tomorrow? And he's like, I can do it. And he did it. So the next day we showed up, we shot it. It was like exactly what we needed to do. We laughed because he's supposed to be like German, right? He's supposed to be like a, an ex-Nazi who's hiding here in America. And he's like, I can't really do a German accent, but I can kind of do like an Arnold Schwarzenegger. And I'm like, well, he's from Austria. Let's do it. I thought it was awesome because he ends up sounding like Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> but he came in and he saved our butts. So Christian Finch is awesome. I haven't worked with him since guns, but with COVID and all that stuff, I've just sadly lost touch with the guy. 
but I liked working with him. I mean, he was really easy to work with. He had his stuff. He's friendly as hell. He's like six foot six, so he's really big and imposing compared to Doug, who's just a, a normal-sized guy, and Christian is uh, extra large, right? He's really tall. He's not like a fat guy or anything, but he's just he's a tall guy and imposing. I mean, even next to me, I'm six feet tall. He seems crazy tall. And so he worked perfectly. He just came in and he saved our butts. And I finished shooting it. The next thing I knew, I was spending my time editing. But before we released the movie, after I finished it, but before I actually released it, we were moving into doing the Monster Family the Musical, which I will talk about next month on An Oral History of the Mimiverse. Stephen D. Sullivan and St. Euphoria present Atomic Tales Stories of science, mystery, and excitement This episode features the latest installment in our fantastic original series Strange Invaders Tonight, Agents 1 and 5 travel to Wyoming to investigate wildlife deaths and end up with a lot more than they'd bargained for in Deadly Shrews Join us now as we present another in our continuing series of Atomic Tales. Agent 1 to Agent 5. Agent 1 to Agent 5. Come in, 5. Wyoming blizzard winds drowned out my voice, practically ripping the words away from my mouth before they could reach the walkie-talkie. Icy snowflakes whipped through the broken cabin window, stabbing my chapped face like tiny daggers. I had no idea if Agent 5, Nelson Deadeye Corrigan, could hear me, but I had to keep trying. He was our only hope. Ray, put that thing down and grab your gun. Tanya Ruhoff's alto voice rose above the howling snowstorm. Here comes another wave. Normally, I don't take orders from Russian spies, but this was a matter of survival. Corrigan, home in on the signal. We're in an old ranger cabin west of Windy Point. Get here fast as you can, or we're dead. I thumbed on the walkie's location control and dropped the unit onto the snowy floor. I barely brought up my shotgun in time. Our shots took out the two giant shrews leading the pack, but they didn't slow the three behind them. God only knew how many mangy rat-like mutations remained hidden in the blowing snow. Our next volley dispatched two more, but the third slammed up against the cabin's flimsy door, which broke its hinges and crashed to the dilapidated shelter's floor. The door took Tanya, who had been sheltering behind it, down as well. She screamed as the four-inch fangs of a rodent the size of a coonhound bit into the forearm of her heavy parka. Ray! I pulled my colt and put a bullet through the thing's blazing red eye. The steaming, foul-smelling corpse slumped to the floor. Tanya and I scrambled to wedge the door crossways in the open portal. It wouldn't protect us from the storm, but at least it gave us cover to shoot from. You okay? I asked. Yeah, thanks. She examined her torn jacket sleeve. It didn't get through the padding. Lucky. She nodded. I'd feel a lot luckier if we had more ammo. My shotgun shells were already gone. Well, if you hadn't... Time for recrimination later. Here they come again. Keep shooting. I'd been about to point out that we wouldn't be in this fix if the pretty Soviet agent hadn't dashed into the wilderness to escape arrest. Of course, when she did that scant hours ago, neither of us could have imagined being caught in a blizzard fighting for our lives against ravenous killer rodents. 
I don't like the look of this. Agent 5 eyed the late November skies warily. Smells like snow. I chuckled. You can smell snow? He gave me one of his patented sneers. Snipers gotta pay attention to the weather. Well, if the weather gets bad, we'll hightail it back to Jackson. Until then, we better try to pick up some tracks from whatever's been killing the local wildlife. I unpacked my gear from the back of our rented jeep and Deadeye did the same. His gear included a sniper rifle. We'd parked near a trailhead about 13 miles north of Jackson, Wyoming, close to a spot ominously dubbed Death Canyon. The U.S. Science Bureau had sent us because local big game hunters had found mutilated carcasses of deer, moose, and even large bears. Takes a lot to kill a grizzly. Deadeye had noted when we spoke to a local ranger about the problem. That was why I brought a double-barreled shotgun to the trail, and Deadeye toted his sniper gear as well as our usual Colt 1911 pistols. Five checked his sights. At least this time of year. It's not likely to be ants. Not unless they've mutated to withstand the ice and cold, I replied. The thought made me wish we'd brought some M3 greasers along, though the submachine guns hadn't seemed practical in this snow-covered environment. Ice ants? Not damn likely. Five chuckled. <laughs> then paused. Ray, didn't that ranger say we're the only people supposed to be out in this godforsaken wilderness? Yeah, why? He pointed and then trained his scope on a figure slogging through the packed snow near the tree line. I fished out my binoculars and took a look. Then I swore. That looks like Tanya Ruhoff. That's what I thought too. What do you suppose that Rusky's up to out here? No good, I'm sure. Come on, maybe we can catch her before she spots us. That I zeroed in with his sniper rifle. I could take her down from here. We don't want her killed, just captured. A smile traced my partner's thin lips. Don't you trust me, Ray? I put my gloved hand on the gun's barrel and eased it toward the ground. Let's try my way first. We trudged quickly and stealthily toward Tanya, as the fresh snow Dead Eye had predicted started falling hard and fast. But when we got within 75 yards of our quarry, she spotted us and bolted into the pine forest. Deadeye growled. She's fast. You should have let me shoot her, Ray. Too late now. Got your walkie? He patted the two-way radio at his hip. Get back to town. Grab a snowcat or something that'll get through this blizzard. I'll catch her and radio you my position. Five gave me a skeptical nod. You're the boss. He headed for the jeep while I lit out after the woman who'd been playing us, the USSB and me particularly, for fools since the summer. The spruces and firs crowding the slopes of the Grand Tetons filled the snowy air with the redolent scent of pine as I sprinted across the forested hillside. The Russian was quick as a white-tailed deer, but the crunching snowpack slowed her down, and no way was I going to let her slip away from me again. As she reached a decaying old ranger cabin, she slowed and drew a pistol. I ducked behind a tall fir. Tanya, don't make me hurt you, I called. A shot rang out. To my surprise, it wasn't aimed at me. Instead, a high-pitched squeal echoed through the snowflake-filled air, and the corpse of a strange, shaggy creature tumbled across the icy ground. The thing looked like a long-snouted rat made out of mange and bones, but it was as large as a wolf and had a mouthful of fangs the size of my fingers. What in hell? Tanya beckoned to me, holding open the door to the ancient cabin. Ray, come on! There are more of them! I didn't entirely trust that she wouldn't shoot me, but I also didn't want to stay in the open with more rat creatures prowling around. Quick as I could, I joined her. What are those things? Giant shrews. Tanya replied. Judging from the tracks, 
More of your Russian handiwork, I suppose. Ray, I, I know what you think, but you're wrong. My people aren't responsible for any of this. We're having the same kind of troubles you are. The giant bugs and the other monsters. That's why the Kremlin sent me here. To find out if you Americans are behind it. Which is exactly what you'd say if your bosses in Moscow were behind the whole shebang. She rolled her big brown eyes in frustration. What do I have to do to convince you that we're on the same side here? A strange whistling, squeaking sound wailed outside the cabin now, audible even over the howl of the wind. A shiver ran down my side as another giant shrew emerged from the storm. Our pistols barked and the monster fell dead in the snow. I looked at Tanya, wondering if I could trust her. She leaned in and kissed me. I pulled back, startled. What was that for? She grinned. For luck. There's a lot more of them than us, I'm afraid. She was right, because even before the sweet taste of her lips faded, a half dozen more of the ravening, chittering mutants emerged from the storm and charged the cabin. The report of my colt nearly shattered my eardrums as the giant shrew bore me to the ground, but my shot blew its brains out and I rolled out from under the twitching, putrid corpse just in time to see Tanya shove the barrel of her Makarov pistol into the mouth of a shrew trying to bite her face off. That rodent didn't live long, but another came at us almost before we could get our door barricade back in place. How much ammo do you have, Ray? She looked worried as she pumped a shot into the closest mutation. Not enough, I replied, blasting another one. Two more, I think. I'm out. We looked at each other grimly as the remainder of the pack at least six, paused uphill to gnaw at the steaming corpses of their felled comrades. Tanya's mouth drew into a thin line. Cannibalism won't occupy them long. We'll take them hand to hand if we have to. Judging from how torn up our parkas had become from the fighting so far, I didn't much like the thought of that. Then... Two giant rodents fell dead, their heads exploded. The others looked around, confused, as my walkie-talkie crackled to life. Hang on in there, Five's voice announced. I'll be just another minute. Two more shrews went to monster heaven. Something exploded behind my eyes, and the world spun. As everything went black, I realized that Tanya had killed me. Wake up, Ray. You're not dead. Five's gruff voice brought me back from the abyss. I sat up quickly and immediately regretted it. I still lay in the snowy cabin, freezing my butt off. A lump the size of half dollar on the back of my head throbbed. Outside, Deadeye's commandeered snowcat idled noisily. Is she? I began. Deadeye shook his head. Escaped out the back while I was cleaning up your playmates. Damn it. She's tricky, that one. I rubbed my aching skull. You can say that again, but we'll catch her one day. Five's green eyes twinkled. You sure about that, Ray? Nope, but at least we got some more monster samples for the Terragons. This has been an original story of Strange Invaders, part of our ongoing series of Atomic Tales. Brought to you by St. Euphoria Productions. Tonight's episode, Deadly Shrews, was written by Stephen D. Sullivan. It was produced, edited, and read by Christopher R. Mim, who also plays Agent 1, and featured Steve Sullivan as Agent 5, Nelson Deadeye Corrigan, and Danielle Gerliter, a.k.a. horror host Penny Dreadful, as Soviet spy Tanya Ruhoff. 
Be sure to tune in next month for more Atomic Tales. Please support the films of Christopher R. Mim at SaintEuphoria.com and the work of Stephen D. Sullivan via his Patreon at PaySteve.com. Join the conversation at the Monster Conservancy at SaveMonsters.com. All elements of this episode are copyright 2023 by their creators and may not be reproduced or reused without permission. Atomic Tales and Strange Invaders are trademarks of Stephen D. Sullivan, all rights reserved. This is the St. Euphoria Audiocast Network. Thank you so much for listening to this month's edition of the Mimiverse Monthly Audiocast. I hope you enjoy Annihilate All Humans when you finally get a chance to see it. I'm very proud of it, and I know that everyone involved is going to be happy with it. It just turned out really good, and I'm very happy to, in essence, be fully back into making movies with people who I'm not related to. As much as I love my family, sometimes... You want to hang out with people you're not related to and make art with your friends. So I'm really excited that it's out. I hope you enjoy it when you see it or if you've seen it because you're listening to this after it's released. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you didn't, thank you for checking it out. And just know that whatever it is you didn't like about it will be completely fixed by the time the wad comes out. And you're going to love the wad so much that you should contribute to it at seeingyouforia.com because I promise whatever it is, that you didn't like about Annihilate All Humans. I fixed it in the wad. I know what it is. I know what you're talking about. I know what you're thinking. I'm sorry. I tried my best. And sometimes things don't work out the way they're supposed to. And I know what you're talking about. I know what you're thinking. And in your head, I agree with you. You're totally right. And I promise you that those things I've already addressed in the scripting stage of the wad. So it's not even going to be an issue once we get to the filming or post-production stages. It's already fixed. And one of the ways you can reward me for reading your mind and knowing exactly what I did wrong and how to fix it is by throwing some money at the wad to make sure it gets made by going to sainteuphoria.com and contributing. Otherwise, just remember, as I always say, be good. But if you can't do that, be good at it. I will talk to you again next month. Bye.